Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Well, good morning. Uh, for those that have not met me, I am Bruce Struxma, and I am having troubles with my music stand. I am the senior pastor here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church. We are glad you are here. And as the kids head out to Sunday school, um, I want to start, I thought it would be appropriate as we're getting ready to do all of these games for the harvest party, I thought it'd be appropriate that we would play a game here this morning. So we are gonna play a game of Family Feud and I'm gonna have this side of the sanctuary be one family and this side of the sanctuary be the other family. And I did actually flip a coin before we started and this side won the first um, guess. So Alicia is super excited about this. Here's your question. We did survey, not me personally, I found it online, but we did survey a thousand kids and we asked them this question. Which Halloween treat they would most like to receive when trick-or-treating this year? And I'm looking for an answer from this side, in the back. Reese's peanut butter cups? Uh, (laughs) All right, and (laughs) they're going for it. I, I do have to say that's not the top answer. So I'm gonna give this side an opportunity to steal. Twix. Oh, oh, we have two, Twix, Kit Kat, I need an answer. <laughs> We've thrown out a bunch. I'm gonna go with the first one I heard, which was Twix, which is also in the top six, but not the top one. Congratulations, this side, you took it with Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Yeah. Number six survey answer was Skittles. Skittles, number six. Number five, M&Ms, okay, number four, Snickers, okay, three, there's your Kit Kat, number two, there's your Reese's, and your number one candy choice, Hershey's Chocolate Bar. Yeah, kind of disturbing, our young people today, seriously. (sighs) But, uh, there it is. Uh, I bring that up for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's fun to have fun. I think it's important that we have fun together as a church body. Uh, I also bring it up because we could still use some more candy for the harvest party. And we've given you a list of candy that kids like. Uh, We'll take anything though, seriously. Uh, It does not have to be up there. We will take anything. Uh, But the harvest party is coming up. And so I would encourage you, as Luke so eloquently stated at the beginning of our service, this is a big outreach we do for our community. If you can stick around today after the service and help us stack chairs or even more, uh, that would be great. If you uh, can stick around this week, Uh, Bethany, our children's ministry director, told me that she could use a baker's dozen, which is 13, a baker's dozen people still to help. So if you're available, we do have a sign-up sheet in the back. We would love to have you. This is a great way that we show love to our community. Uh, it's a great way that we get people and into our church. And the weather looks awful uh, for Halloween. So we expect a decent turnout because we are inside. Uh, so we would love to have you uh, participate in that. But that is not why we are here this morning, as fun as these kind of things are. Uh, we're going to dig into Colossians again. We've been looking at the church in Colossae, the book of Colossians, looking at what Paul the Apostle wrote to the church there and looking at how does that apply to us here. And um, thank you, Cher, for leading us in the Apostles' Creed. We've also been looking at these historic creeds of faith and going, how, where did these come from? 
And last week we talked about the Chalcedonian definition and the, and the big point of that was that we read these scripture passages that dealt with the deity and humanity of Jesus, how we needed both for our salvation. And here is this historic statement of faith that was written um, literally miles away from where that book was written to in Colossae, in Turkey, in Chalcedonia. Uh, we, we had this statement of faith come out on the deity and humanity and how it supports our scriptural understanding and doesn't replace it, right? And doesn't have authority over it. Same with the Apostles' Creed. It's been recited in churches by believers for generations and it unifies us, but it does not replace scripture. But we're gonna look at scripture today and see kind of some of the passages that, that guides that statement. And we're gonna look at what Paul is saying to the church in Colossae and looking at what does that mean for us today? And the challenge for a lot of churches in that time is a similar challenge that we here at Watertown could face. Those, those churches, those early churches came out of this deep root of faith in Judaism, right? If you go back to the Old Testament, uh, Israel split in half. You know, King Solomon was king and after King Solomon, the country split in half. And uh, there was the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah. And, and both were hauled off into captivity, right? For disobedience to God, they were both hauled off into captivity. And Judah comes back, and with Judah come some others, but a lot of people from those northern tribes stayed out in the world where they had been hauled off in captivity. And they stayed there potentially forever. And so by the time uh, Jesus comes to earth, there's Israel again, but Israel then was, was uh, mostly Judah and some others still living in that land, but a lot of the, the diaspora, they called it, these people of the Jewish faith had been scattered around the known world. And so after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when the church, the early church starts moving, it moves through these Jewish synagogues, these Jewish places of worship out in the known world. And that would tend to be the first place they would land. And so they land there and there's this deep historical root of Judaism still there of people who were following the Jewish customs and the Jewish laws and following God that way. And so there's this deep root of faith. And, and the challenge in that, that's oftentimes a good thing, but the challenge is sometimes when we do that, we can start to lift up the history and the tradition over the actual religion, right? And we as Christians in America can do the same thing where we can lift up these things that are really good as reminders for us of what our faith is, but pretty soon we can reverse the order and things like creeds can become the faith instead of the worship of Jesus being the faith, right? We can get it backwards. We can lift up and elevate the wrong thing. And that's kind of what Paul is dealing here, dealing with in Colossae. And I think what, what a lot of churches in America, what we should wrestle with is making sure that we're not over-elevating some of these things and forgetting the root of our faith, the core of what we believe, and to keep our eyes focused on that which is of first importance. And as with last week, the risk of confusing the source of the doctrine and the doctrine itself can be subtle. But it's still dangerous and it's not new. And I think that's something that should encourage us. We're not the only ones. Modern Christians aren't the only ones struggling with this, right? It's been a struggle all throughout our Christian history and even before that in Israel's history. 
And as we look at it, you know, the temptation is kind of twofold for the new believer, right? For the new believer who comes to faith in Colossae. So here's this Jewish synagogue and, and, and somebody shows up and brings the story of Jesus Christ and they, a bunch of them start turning to faith in Jesus Christ and they start bringing in new people because now all of a sudden the gospel is open to more than just Jews. And, and these, these Greek people start coming in and these new believers start coming in. And the new believer, the temptation is they see the ritual and they see the pattern and they want to do their faith well. And so they latch on to the ritual and the pattern. And I think we can fall into that same trap as well. For a new believer today, you come into a church and you look around and you kind of do that, like what is everybody else doing? And that slowly can become what faith is instead of what actually brought you to faith. What brought us to faith is this knowledge of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and the freedom he brings. And subtly we can shift to how we worship and, and which church we go to and what that looks like. And we can replace the pattern for the real thing. And for the existing believer, the temptation is similar but slightly different, right? We grew up in this faith maybe here at Watertown or for them back in, in, uh, in Israel or in Colossae. They grew up in a community of faith. And, and for the same, they've fallen into the same trap for a different reason. This is how we've always done it. This is how we've always done it. We have always honored the Sabbath. We've always done these festivals. We've always done these sacrifices. And the temptation can be very similar, but for a different reason. And we can replace that which is of core importance with these secondary things. And so here the reminders from Paul to Colossae are also reminders to us as the church today. How do we hold on together new and old believers to the foundations of our faith? And the church in Colossae is wrestling with that, and I think it is good for us to consider these reminders from Paul in the same way. And the first reminder, I think, that we get from Paul is remember the roots of faith. Remember your roots of faith. The first reminder is to remember our roots. And for some of us, that's a long time ago. For me, the roots of my faith go back to sitting on my bed as a little child and having a conversation with my mom where she said and encouraged me to pray a prayer saying, Jesus, I need you in my life. Now, that's not where my faith stopped, but that is where the root goes all the way back. For others of us, the root is, is closer. For some of you, the root is even farther back than mine. But we remember that root, that core. What is it that brought us to faith? What was the thing that initially brought you to faith in Jesus Christ? And if you haven't done that yet, what is holding you back is a question maybe to consider. But think back to what is it that convinced you? Because I would argue generally that thing that convinced us was not a ritual. The thing that convinced us was not a, an argument or a theological treatise that we, we encountered something in the person of Jesus Christ that we knew we needed to have in our life. Remember that root, go back to that core. And that's, that's what Paul says, starting in verse six, here in Colossians. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And so we, we remember our root and notice that Paul says the first outflow of that is thankfulness. As, as believers in Jesus Christ, whenever we remember why we came to faith, our resulting response should be gratefulness and thankfulness. There's a great quote 
um, that, that has been variously attributed. And if anybody knows who actually said it first, you can come and tell me later. But I, found, I couldn't find consensus on it, so I'm just going to share it anonymously. But the quote is this, there will be three surprises in heaven. Who is there? Who is not there? And the fact that I am there. And I think that's a good reminder for all of us as believers that we should start with that third one. The fact that any of us have any opportunity to have an eternal relationship with God, despite all of our sins, should bring us to an overwhelming stance of thankfulness. We should be grateful that we have this opportunity to be reconciled with God. And we're going to kind of build on this analogy, but as we, as we think of it, picture a giant chasm. That sin has completely and entirely separated us from God and there's no way across that chasm. The fact that some of us can be brought to the other side, can be reconciled, should bring us incredible gratefulness. And Paul wants us to start there, but he continues on as we talk about the roots of faith. We should overflow with thankfulness. But he goes on in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity live in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. See, our root of faith, the reason we go back there has a reason. We go back to that root to focus on the core of our faith so we don't get distracted by hollow philosophies and other arguments. Because it's easy for people to build arguments on that. Well, if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you must also believe A, B, C, D, E, F, and G to be a believer. And he says, no, go back to that core. Go back to that root so you don't get, you know, uh, pulled away by hollow and deceptive philosophies. It reminds us of our roots. We did not come to faith as Christians because we were good people. We didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ because of a statement, our statement of faith as an evangelical free church or here at Watertown. That isn't what brought us to faith. What brought us to faith is Jesus Christ. He saved us by grace alone through faith alone. That's it. That's the core. That's the root. And we can't get sucked away and start adding on to it. And so if somebody preaches traditions over grace, don't be fooled. If someone preaches a secret knowledge or a secret insight, yeah, but you also have to know. Don't be fooled. Don't get sucked into it. But also, do not add to the gospel. And I think that's a temptation for all of us. We are the ones sometimes as the believer who's been around for a while and and we're talking to somebody who doesn't know Jesus and and pretty soon we can start adding things to it. It's not just Christ and him crucified. It's, well, you know, you need to come to know Jesus Christ. And then also, I need to talk to you about your belief on the end times. I need a very specific understanding of what life will look like at the end of the world. And that's, we, we, we can add these things that are really, really important to us and start adding them on. You also have to believe. You also have to believe and don't forget this. So we cannot add to the gospel more than what saved us. What saved me was knowledge of Jesus Christ, faith in him alone, knowing that I had sin that couldn't be covered on my own and that Jesus died on the cross and rose again on my behalf. 
That's what saved me. Not my view of the end times, not my view of, of any other doctrine. So do not add to the gospel. Do not add your own experience. If it was good enough for you and me, it's good enough for somebody else. But we also see that it's because Jesus is the power and the authority. We point to Jesus and not these other things because he is the power. He is the, the authority, and that should give us peace. When we look at the world and we can see the world that seems to be falling apart, and we can look all around the world and see evil, and we can see the powers and we can see authorities of this world, and it's nice to know at some level, even if we don't understand it, Jesus is in control. He is the ultimate power. He is the ultimate authority, Paul tells us. He is the head over every power and authority. And so it is in, in him we find our hope because it's in him alone that we find the gospel. And that is the root of our faith. So let me ask you today, where have you strayed from those roots? Where are the spots where maybe you have been tempted to add these other things on to the gospel? Maybe not for others, maybe for yourself. Where is the spot where you have piled something else on yourself and you've said, you know what, I need, to, I need to fix this on my own before Jesus will accept me? Where is the spot where you've added to it for somebody else? Where is the spot where we have built on around that which is essential, other things that are non-essentials? Where have we gone to Jesus plus? Jesus plus my view of politics. Jesus plus my view of the church. Jesus plus my view of worship. So remember that these traditions and ceremonies of the church, and Paul builds this argument with circumcision, which was a tradition that, that they no longer needed, and he's arguing you don't need it because it was supposed to remind you of God, and now you have Jesus. And so these traditions are good as long as they remain in that role, as reminders. But as soon as we start adding them onto the root of our faith, we risk going astray. So remember the root of your faith. But also Paul is going to go on. He's going to say to us, remember your standing. Remember your standing. And Paul brings us to, this, to another reminder, our standing in Christ. And it's a legal standing he's using. And, and I heard somebody say that as every guy gets older, they have to decide they're going to get into something. It's smoked meat. Um, it's submarines. They have to get into something weird and obscure. Apparently my thing is sailing ships in the Napoleonic Wars. I've been reading a lot of fictional novels about the Napoleonic Wars and sailing ships, and I think to the chagrin of my wife, who gets kind of annoyed with this. But I bring it up because I was reading one of these novels, because I'm becoming an old man, and I need to get into my obscure hobby. And I was reading one of these novels, and I came across this, this unique situation. And one thing you need to understand about uh, sailing ships at that time is they had no communication with the shore. And so what the captain said was law. And in fact, at that time, and I did some research on this. I was fascinated by it. I actually looked into it. At that time, a, a captain on a sailing ship in the, in the British Navy had more authority, unilateral authority, than the King of England did. There were things that he could do as a captain of a ship that the King of England could not do without other people approving it. So it's this really unique situation where this captain, his, his word was law. And if he condemned you to death, that was it. You had no appeal. You're toast. And, and I came across this unique phrase, this unique statement. Because in one book that I was reading, the captain gave a reprieve to a prisoner. And, he, and, and one of the other sailors said this. You see, in law, he is a dead man 
talking about the man who was condemned, right? So here he is, the noose around his neck on the ship, about to be hung, and the captain gives him a reprieve at that moment. You see, in law, he is a dead man at that moment, sent, and that the moment that sentence is pronounced. A reprieve, therefore, means he is a new man. Debts dissolved, but property disowned. And I thought, what a great analogy for what we as Christians believe. Here we stand condemned. Our sin has brought us condemnation. We deserve death. The rope is around the neck and in steps Jesus. And at that moment, he offers a reprieve. And at that moment, we are new people. And in and, and their legal standing, this is a new person. You could not literally hold them accountable for anything that had happened prior to that. They had a reprieve. And it's interesting, and it says, but also their property. They lost all of their property, all the things they owned. And I thought, even that, that's what we're called to do. We're not called to hold on to the things of this world anymore. We've been, re- we've been given a reprieve. And Paul is, is going to kind of give us the same, the same view, starting in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so for us as Christians, this is a great reminder that we have all we need in Christ. Those things that, of the earth that we want, you know, our, our, our things that we hold on to, our power, our authority, our position, um, our actual property, we don't own them anymore. We have Christ. And we shouldn't hold on to these things as things that will help us. We have all we need in Christ that even if in this life everything is taken away from us, we have all we need because we have gotten a reprieve from our sin. We stand justified. We stand justified, which is a legal term. And, and, if you, and to help understand justified, you can take it and break it up into smaller words, just as if. We stand just as if we had not sinned. In God's eyes, there is no sin in our life because we have Christ. We have justification. We have the legal standing. We remember our roots of faith and we remember our legal standing. These give us all we need. And Paul is going to draw these parallels between living in the world and living in Christ. And if we live in the world, we are dead to sin. But if we are in Christ, we are alive we live in the world, we are charged and condemned, and in Christ we are forgiven. And in the world, we are under the world's authority versus in Christ, we triumph over the world because of the cross. And this one we need to unpack because he says in there, he made a public spectacle of them. And that's, that's a, a phrase that carries a lot of weight in the Greek world because what you would do if, if you were a, a king or a, a, the emperor of Rome at the time, and you conquered another territory, you know, there was no uh, Instagram. There was no, you know, streaming news services. There was no television news, radio, telegram. The only way to communicate the totality of your victory was to take all of your conquered people and parade them through the streets of your town. And so what you would do is, is the, 
the emperor or the king would ride up front and then his troops would march behind him and then behind them in chains being made a public spectacle was the conquered forces. And who is being made a public spectacle of here? And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he's talking about the ones of the world, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We don't have to live in fear anymore of what the world can do or what the other powers can do. We don't have to live in fear of, of sin. We don't have to live in fear of Satan and his powers. They've been made a public spectacle of. We have freedom in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin and death. So we remember our standing. And as the theologian N.T. Wright puts it in one commentary, when God looks at those who are in Christ, he reckons that what is true of Christ, particularly his death and resurrection, is true of them. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we get his standing on our behalf. When God looks at us, he sees Christ. And that is all we need. And we cannot hold on to these other things. So remember your standing, that you are justified by grace alone through faith alone. So where are the spots in your life where maybe you're still holding on to the sin, the shame, the, the, the embarrassment of who you used to be? If you've put your faith in Christ, you don't need to live in that anymore. Now, there might still be earthly consequences, sure. If I go out and wrap multiple cars around multiple telephone poles, my insurance rates will go up. I don't get to call them and say, hey, justified by grace alone through faith alone, give me my insurance rates back. But Jesus and God doesn't see those things. We don't have to live in that shame anymore. But where maybe are you holding on to something and you aren't repenting? Where are we not giving it up to Christ? Where are we holding on to those things of the world, whether it be a position or a job or a, a grade, a GPA, that college we want to get into? Where are we holding on and looking for those things to bring us justification? Hold on to Christ. Remember your standing. We are freed from sin, but only through Christ. So remember your roots, remember your standing, and remember your authority. If God has publicly humiliated the laws and authority of the world, we need to remember that we, therefore, are under his authority and not any other. But this section carries with it a two-edged sword. A lot of people love the stuff where it talks about freedom in Christ in Scripture. Freedom in Christ. I'm free. We like the freedom. We like the get-out-of-jail-free card feeling. I can do whatever I want. I have freedom in Christ. God doesn't see my sin anymore. But it's a two-edged sword. We, we don't get freedom to just indulge our life with whatever we want. We are now under a new authority. We don't stand alone. We are under the authority of Christ. This is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card for Christians. So here Paul's words in Colossians verse 16 and 17. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And, and a couple of things I just want to highlight, you know, he's, he's bringing these things up again, saying, hey, you can, you can do these things. 
or you cannot do them, they don't change your standing with God. Right? He's, he's not saying that uh, any tradition is bad. He's not saying that anything we as a church choose to do uh, repeatedly becomes bad because it's become a tradition. He's saying if you elevate those things up to be a part of your salvation, that's the problem. Not in doing them. There are going to be those that are going to continue to, to, as Jews at that time, are going to continue to live out the traditions of their faith, of their Jewish faith. They're going to continue to honor the Sabbath. They're going to continue to do these festivals. And he's not saying that's wrong. In fact, Paul is going to criticize the apostle Peter, not because he does those things, but because Peter starts saying that you need to do those things. Even Paul, if you read in Acts, when he goes back to Jerusalem right before he is arrested, he takes part in a Jewish religious festival. Doing the action isn't the problem, it's elevating it. It's, it's, it's thinking that is now your authority. So remember whose authority you are under, Paul is saying. And so we look at this and we have to look at other passages in scripture to understand that what Paul is saying is that we need to remember why we have this freedom. Why do we have the freedom to do or not do? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19 through 23, Paul writes this. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. And if you read Acts, I'm going to pause here, I'll come back, but if you read Acts, when Paul goes back to Jerusalem, that's exactly what he does. There are people who are accusing him of speaking against religious law and saying that it's evil, and he goes, no, I'll do it to show you that I can still do it, that it's not about that. That's exactly what he does. Continue on, verse 21, to those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. We are under Christ's authority. We don't get a free pass to do whatever we want. Yes, grace will cover our sin, but we must still be under Christ's authority. We still have his authority, so remember your authority. The question is, why do we indulge in our freedom? If there's an opportunity for us to use our freedom to win somebody to Christ, please do so. But if our freedom is causing somebody else to stumble, maybe we need to reevaluate what we're doing. That's the image we get here in Colossae and in Corinth. We should remind us of Christ. The fear is that we replace even these freedoms with Christ. But instead, we become all things to all people. We are no longer slaves to sin, the world, and death, but we are still slaves to Christ. We are under his authority. And the second half of the passage here in Colossians is going to point to that pitfall as well. Verses 18 and 19, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. 
If we can get so wrapped up into our freedom, we can, we can fall into frivolous arguments and, and, and add, again, adding on things, you know. But I had this dream or I had this view or I had this vision. And those are all potentially valid things that God can speak through. But if we put them on top of Christ, we've fallen into the same pitfall. And Paul, again, will speak on this in other books. Galatians 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. We are called to use the freedom we have in Christ to serve those who are outside of God, to bring them into the gospel. So serve one another. Serve in this church, serve in our community, serve at the Harvest Party, serve at Awana, serve in youth ministry, serve in the Wednesday night meals, serve as a Bible study leader, serve at the soup kitchens in town, whatever, find ways to serve one another. That's what our freedom is for. That's why we have it. We want to be a church that is known in this community for its service, so serve. And so we remember our roots, we remember our standing We remember Christ as our ultimate authority. And finally, we could summarize it all in this. Remember what matters. Christ. That's the core. That's who we stay focused on. Throughout this entire passage, Paul has been routinely pointing to Christ, and now he doubles down because this is the core of the gospel. Remember Christ. Starting in verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they, like, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And so I, I want to look at this a little bit because that first, that first sentence is really much less of a chastisement. Let me say that again. Much less of a chastisement of the people and much more of a warning. It's like, it's like driving along the road and seeing a sign that says, warning, bridge out ahead. Caution. The way you're going is dangerous. And if we can go back to our analogy that that God is on that side of a chasm and we are on this side of the chasm, Paul's words here are almost like a reminder to us, like, why do you keep going down this road? You know the bridge is out. It doesn't work. It won't get you to the other side. And even to compound it, it's like he's looking at you going, you're a bird. You can fly. You are no longer under the rules of gravity. Why do you continue driving in a car towards a bridge that won't save you? Fly to the other side. I mean, he's almost incredulous. Like, do you not see this? Why do you keep going back to these rules that say you're a Christian, you're not? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on human commands and teachings. They won't save you. Why do you keep going back to them? Why do we keep taking our eyes off of Jesus Christ and starting to look back to the traditions, the patterns, the things we do, the things that we think save us? When I was a kid, I went to a youth conference. And it was a great youth conference, but the youth speaker had us all stand up. And I'm not going to do it here. But imagine if I had you all stand up. And then he he looked at us all and he said, if you didn't read your Bible this morning, sit down. If you didn't read your Bible every day this week, sit down. 
If you didn't read your Bible every day this month, sit down. If you missed one day of reading your Bible this year, sit down. And lo and behold, a bunch of high school kids were all sitting down. And he looked at us and he said, and you call yourself Christians. He had piled on all of these things, and it took me a long time to deal with that. For a long time, I fell into this, I'm not a good follower of Jesus if I don't read my Bible every day. Is reading your Bible every day good? Absolutely. I would encourage you to do so. But if you think that's what makes you a Christian, focus on Christ. Not on these things that are made by human. Here a human had made up a rule in his head that this is what it meant to be a Christian, and he had piled it on all of us. And when I read the gospel, that's not what I see. Keep your eyes on Christ. And a good litmus test for us in all things, am I doing this for Christ or am I doing it to satisfy some standard I've given myself? Am I serving others to serve Christ or am I serving others that people will look favorably on me? And those things aren't bad, but it's a good evaluation we should do regularly. Am I using my freedom in Christ to win others to the gospel or because I want to? Where is my focus? Where is my focus? And to that end, that's why we've been going through these creeds. And I'm not going to have us do the Apostles' Creed again because we did it earlier. But that should remind us and help us triage the things that we as churches can disagree on to go, this is the core. Who Jesus Christ is and how you come to know faith in him is the core. And other things, though important, we cannot elevate to the same level. And so I want to be in communion with other believers and I want to focus on those things that are most essential. And to that end, I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your death and your resurrection on our behalf. God, we thank you that it is by that grace alone, Lord, that we come to know you. God, forgive us for the times that we have put other things on that. God, forgive us for the times that we have added things to the gospel for ourselves and for those around us. Lord, help us not to pile on burdens on those around us. God, help us to become like them, to help them find the freedom in you, the freedom from sin. In your name, amen. As we end this morning, I want to end with a passage from the book of Jude, verses 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.